0: Donald Trump's fourth criminal indictment, number four, appears to be days away. NBC News is now reporting that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is expected to present her case to the grand jury next week. Now, we know that D.A. Willis has been investigating Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia, And her investigation appears to have quite a bit in common with the federal case being brought by special counsel Jack Smith in Washington, D.C. But the case in Georgia may prove to be different from Jack Smith's case in one very meaningful way. And to understand that, we need to go back to 1979 when the city of Atlanta was experiencing an unprecedented wave of crime. Here was NBC Nightly News in August of that year.
1: During the first six months of this year, crime in Atlanta was up 30 percent. Robbery and aggravated assault were up 70 percent. And murder was up, too. Atlanta has had 140 homicides, the highest total since 1973.
0: So that was the way the national media was talking about the city of Atlanta as the decade closed out in 1979. Here was the headline in The New York Times that very same month. Atlanta fearing for national reputation mounts urgent fight on crime. That same year, the Georgia governor sent state troopers to Atlanta after a Wall Street Journal story suggested that the city's crime wave might undermine attempts to draw business to the state. And so state lawmakers started passing tough and often very harsh new policies to try and crack down on crime. The next year, in 1980, Georgia lawmakers decided that one of the ways they could deal with rising crime was to adopt a new RICO statute. Now, you may have heard the phrase RICO used in conjunction with famous mafia cases. It refers to the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO. It's a federal law that the Department of Justice uses to go after organized crime. During the 1980s, a young U.S. attorney by the name of Rudy Giuliani was making a name for himself, prosecuting mafia members under federal RICO laws. Put a pin in that one because we are going to come back to Rudy and RICO just a little bit later. But anyway, down in Georgia, the RICO statute that state lawmakers were crafting was different than the one that Giuliani was using to go after mafia dons. Norm Eisen, the legal scholar, told The New Yorker, Georgia created its RICO statute in 1980, less to target the mafia than to go after black street gangs and non-traditional conspiracies. At the time, Georgia's predominantly white state assembly said it needed the new RICO law to address the increasing sophistication of various criminal elements. The increasing sophistication. And so, the Georgia legislature made their RICO laws even tougher than the ones the feds were using. For instance, for federal prosecutors to charge someone under RICO, they have to show that that person is part of a large criminal organization that has usually been around for some time. But the Georgia RICO law is much broader. Prosecutors in Georgia don't have to show that someone is part of a large criminal operation. The Georgia definition of criminal enterprise can encompass a wide range of illegal acts to further a single criminal goal. And that Georgia-RICO law, the one that was dreamed up by the tough-on-crime good-old-boys of the 1980 Georgia legislature, that is the law which D.A. Fonnie Willis now has at her disposal to prosecute Donald Trump and his allies— to prosecute them in a way that no federal prosecutor can, not even special counsel Jack Smith. Now, we don't know what, if any, changes or charges D.A. Willis is planning to bring in her case, but we do have some hints. For instance, back at the start of this investigation, D.A. Willis brought in some help, some help from a man named John Floyd, who is considered an expert in Georgia's RICO law. She brought in the RICO guy. So there's that. D.A. Willis has also very publicly professed her preference for charging people under RICO statutes. Here she was in a press conference last year speaking about an unrelated case.
1: I'm a fan of RICO. I've told people that. And the reason that I am a fan of RICO is I think
0: jurors are very, very intelligent.
2: They want to know the whole story. They want to know what happened. They want to make an accurate decision about someone's life. And so RICO is a tool that allows a
0: prosecutor's office and law enforcement to tell the whole story. I'm a fan of RICO. RICO is a tool that allows a prosecutor's office to and law enforcement to tell the whole story. Okay now, And it should be noted, over the course of her career, D.A. Willis has made use of Georgia RICO laws time and time and time again. She used RICO laws to prosecute Atlanta teachers who conspired to rig standardized testing scores in what ended up being the longest criminal trial in Georgia history. She used RICO to prosecute hip-hop artist Young Thug and 27 Associates for their involvement in murder and armed robbery and drug dealing. She has used Georgia's RICO law in all sorts of ways that you might not normally think of as racketeering, which begs the question, if this Georgia statute is broad enough to charge all of those different people, what is stopping her from using it against a former president and his allies? Joining me now is Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. Michael, always great to see you. I have many Georgia-related legal questions. The, <laughs> okay. the first of which is, I mean, do you think it is a stretch for D.A. Willis to potentially prosecute the former president on racketeering charges?
1: Well, I'm, I'm glad to be with you, and I'll try to answer your Georgia questions. I, I think it's a unique uh, posture to put the case in. And, and and really, you you think about RICO and in the name itself, we talk about a corrupt organization. And so essentially, and that's what we'll have to see from any forthcoming indictment, how she identifies the uh, the, the Trump campaign or the Republican Party or the state GOP. Is, are we going to now call that sort of in mass a corrupt organization? Uh, and so I, that that will be a, that'll be a different use uh, of the act itself. Um, the, the beauty for her uh, in having the RICO statute available is that she really can talk about all the dirty laundry and not just maybe the former president's pair of socks or something. I mean, she can actually talk about things that other people did and how that ties into this sort of grand scheme. Uh, through the use of various crimes uh, to, to to violate the RICO statute. So she can talk about that without having to necessarily charge each individual count. And it just lets her talk about, I guess, she's, she's really almost able to give the jury a whole book as opposed to simply a chapter or a few sentences out of the book. And she can talk about the beginning and the end and the middle and the plot and all the twists and how that plays in in her proof of what we call predicate acts. Uh, that would be necessary uh, for her to prove under under the statute. So it's a unique way to do it. Um, it is generally considered a gift. Or it's almost like a conspiracy count for a prosecutor. It's something that. Uh, uh, it is a gift as you move forward, and we'll see if she uses it in this case.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's a big bucket, for lack of a more artful term. I mean, in it, right. she can... It's not just the call to from Trump to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. It's the fake electors plot in Georgia. It's the tampering with the voting machines in Coffee County. It's the dismissal of uh, U- the U.S. Attorney B.J. Pock. I think everybody's mm-hmm. even forgotten about him. But so much happened in Georgia, and that could all fit into a potential RICO charge. I... You you just hinted at this in your previous answer but i would assume the indictment when it comes down is going to be quite illustrative right i mean the the special purpose grand jury that sort of handed down its recommendation that was a very short document i mm-hmm. would assume and i'd love your thoughts on this that this this grand jury indictment is going to be some something a little meatier is that accurate
1: I think it likely will be. I mean, in Georgia, a criminal indictment in a state court, and that's what we're talking about, uh, doesn't have to be uh, a long narrative. It can simply list out the, the uh, uh, offenses uh, that the state intends to, to prove. Um, you know, it's, but I think in this case, because of the nature of the case, uh, you, you'll see more of a speaking indictment like we've seen in, in some of the federal cases. And also, as she talks about these predicate acts and how they were approved, maybe this conspiracy, which I think we'll see there as well. Um, she's going to want to go into some detail. You, you might think about the RICO statute like this, too. It's, it, it's, it's a little bit like the twine that pulls and ties the package together. And so she can put it all in the in the wrapping paper, wrap it up in the statute, then lets her have sort of a single uh, gift, if you will, to, to give the jury. So, um, uh, you know, I, there are some dangers to having a detailed indictment. I mean, defendants are generally entitled to indictments uh, that are near perfect uh, as you go forward. And there can be challenges when there are errors in them. It also sets forth the things that a prosecutor has to prove. The, the danger in having a, a very detailed indictment is that a defense attorney may be able to find one little thing that wasn't quite right and uh, pull on it like a thread and start to unravel the case. And once you create some doubt in a juror's mind it's uh, it's it's often hard to go back. So that's why oftentimes you see more abbreviated indictments in cases like mm. uh, you, you would I typically in the federal court but this or in the state court system but this is th- this is a unique case and I think she'll want to spell out what she was thinking and how she arrived ultimately at the charges that she's asking the grand jury to consider.
0: Yeah, well, we noted that she brought in the RICO guy, the guy in Georgia who's known as the RICO expert. That's a man, a gentleman named John Floyd. I'm going to ask you, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. Do you know, have you heard tell of John Floyd? Is he kind of a a known character in Georgia law? And and what can you tell us about his skills in terms of RICO and painting that narrative that's going to be so essential to her making the case, at least in terms of the court of public opinion?
1: I, I know John. I consider him to be a good colleague and friend here in the bar. Uh, In Atlanta, we see each other at events uh, from from time to time and talk. Um, I think he's a good lawyer. He's certainly a competent lawyer uh, with a very good firm, and um, I'm not surprised to see her bring him in and use him in this way uh, in 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 her investigation. She's used him before uh, in in a Rico case, and he is known uh, for being sort of a scholar uh, when it comes to uh, Rico charges, especially when used maybe a little bit creatively by by a prosecutor. So. Uh, She's put together a a good team, a a strong team, and and we we are just sort of now trotting the team out on the field, I guess, and we'll see sort of how things play out uh, once an indictment comes down, which I think is basically a foregone conclusion. Uh, Either that or, you know, we've got a lot of uh, traffic delays and disruptions (laughs) down around the courthouse because of security. So I, I, I expect probably next week Uh, we'll see an indictment, uh, maybe a couple of indictments, but certainly involving several defendants uh, roll out fairly quickly.
0: Can I let me speaking of security? I mean, Trump has been already directing quite a bit of vitriol towards D.A. Willis. There is a new ad that he has taken out, which targets a number of prosecutors. I'll play the part that's relevant to D.A. Willis control room, if we could play that now.
2: And Biden's newest lackey, Atlanta DA, Bonnie Willis. So incompetent, on her watch, violent crimes have exploded.
0: So uh, we can expect more of that, I'm sure. And I would wonder, given all the back and forth over a protective order in the federal case in and around Trump's efforts to subvert democracy on January 6th, do you see, do you think there is going to be a similar battle to protect the, the discovery evidence to just effectively curb Trump's impulses to target witnesses, prosecutors, judges? I mean, how's that going to work down in Atlanta?
1: Well, his mouth has been his biggest enemy, and I, I hope that whoever put that ad together was fired immediately because it's one of the dumbest things I've seen you do. You, you may as well just be pouring gasoline in the engine of the prosecutor's office in a, in a case like that to run that kind of nonsense uh, uh, out. It's, it's silly. I mean, prosecutors expect it. They expect it to be called ugly names, and um, but it fires them up at times, and so I think that's really all he's done is energize that. It also causes sometimes courts and other things to come and circle around uh, and protect folks as well. So I, I, I just think it was a dumb move, and that's about as the kindest word I can think to say about it right now. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see there be some effort to have a gag order. I think he has shown a pattern, and his team has shown a pattern of trying to intimidate witnesses. Uh, that may very well be an added. Provision on the RICO statute. If he uh, if he continued that kind of conduct, you may send a, a follow up indictment, but uh, and certainly some proof about it. You, you know, but we are balancing here the rights of a defendant, a, a putative defendant at this point, but a, a, a criminal defendant to uh, have access to information, to be able to look at the criminal discovery, to be able to have the documents that will be used against them in court, to have what the witnesses say and the identity of those witnesses and what. You know, they expect to testify to what they've testified to in the past. And so, you know, a defendant does have those rights. And you couple that with this sort of unique posture that we're in a political season. So at the same time that, you know, Trump is attacking and his team is, is attacking the, the prosecutors, you've got maybe his Republican opponents and rivals who want to take his old job. They're attacking him now. They've suddenly grown a backbone after uh, several years. You know, they want to come out now and take a shot at him. Um, you've got the former, the current president, who, if Trump is the nominee, is going to be running in a campaign against Trump. And so he's going to have ads out there. So there'll have to be a balancing of Trump's right to campaign, his right to free speech, his right to political speech, his right to uh, respond to attacks and mm-hmm. attack ads that are against him during the political season. Uh, But but when you cross over that place where you start doing things that jeopardize the safety of witnesses, uh, that becomes criminal. And I just don't I don't think the judges down here are going to take kindly to it.
0: Yeah, I think that ad is definitely over the line. (laughs) And we haven't even gotten an indictment yet. Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Georgia. Always good to see you, sir. Thanks for your time tonight.
1: It's always a pleasure. Thank you.
0: We have lots more ahead tonight, including why Jack Smith may be interested in Trump's Twitter account. And as prosecutors ask a judge to limit what Trump can say publicly about his legal peril, a heavily armed man in Utah who made threats against prosecutors and political figures and President Biden is shot and killed by the FBI. We're gonna talk about that coming up next. Stay with us.
2: There comes a point when the right to vote
0: So President Biden is in Salt Lake City tonight. It's the final stop of a three state tour. And it also happens to be Biden's first trip to Utah since he became president. And early this morning, about 45 miles south of Salt Lake City in Provo, the FBI shot and killed a man who allegedly made numerous violent threats against President Biden and other Democratic politicians and public figures. Now, the FBI was attempting to serve search warrants and an arrest warrant to a suspect identified in charging documents as a man named Craig Robertson, Robertson, who posted these threats to social media. Robertson referenced Biden's visit to Utah today and said he needed to prepare his ghillie suit and sniper rifle. This, if you did not know, is what a ghillie suit looks like. As part of the FBI's investigation into Robertson, which began in March of this year, the agency says it reviewed numerous posts in which Robertson threatened violence against government officials. Robertson's alleged threat to Manhattan D.A. Alvin Bragg called him a political hack linked to George Soros, and then in gruesome detail, it described a plot to assassinate Bragg in a parking garage. He also targeted New York Attorney General Letitia James, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and California Governor Gavin Newsom. Joining me now is Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence and an MSNBC National Security Analyst. Frank, thanks so much for being here. I first just I want to get your thoughts. Let's first talk about the, the Soros, the mention of Soros in here. You hear that a lot in right-wing sort of paranoid conspiracy circles. Do you see—I mean, I, to state the obvious, but can you talk to me a little bit about the, the linkage between what's happening there and how that's seeding the sort of most violent um, corners of, of, the, of the universe and folks like apparently this alleged uh, would-be assassin?
3: Sure. If you think you've seen this before, it's because you have. And it's a common theme, this concept that someone is controlling the globe, controlling elections and politics, and it's all bad. They're vile, they're subhuman. And it's also something called stochastic terrorism, which is this concept that some leader figure is calling out people as less than human, dehumanizing them, they're evil. And therefore, it becomes much easier for people to respond to that kind of ideology and act out violently. We certainly saw it in large numbers, a thousand arrested already, at January 6th. We saw people willing to die, including Ashley Babbitt, who consumed these Trump conspiracy theories wrapped in a Trump camf- campaign flag as she's breaching security at the Capitol. We saw it in Cincinnati where a man breached security or tried to at the FBI Cincinnati field office ended up dying in a cornfield after hours of standoff. And I'm afraid this is not anyway the end of this, but rather just the beginning as we continue to see Trump and his cohorts, making vile accusations against people who are now prosecuting Trump, whether prosecutors or judges. So there's more of this coming. And law enforcement's challenge, of course, is to get out in front of it before the really bad thing happens.
0: Well, yeah, and I mean, tonight on Newsmax, Trump is, you use the word dehumanizing. I think that's a great description of what he's trying to do to prosecutors, including Fonnie Willis and Alvin Bragg and Letitia James and Jack Smith. This is what he had to say this evening.
2: And Biden's newest lackey, Atlanta DA, Fonnie Willis. So incompetent, on her watch, violent crimes have exploded.
1: This woman is not a capable woman. Jack Smith, uh, he's
4: like a he's like a deranged individual. He's a sick puppy.
0: Really striking to me that, you know, on a day where, uh, you know, we're talking about the FBI having to kill someone who is pres- presumably armed in a in a in a conflagration with law enforcement as they're trying to serve arrest warrants and search warrants because he is fired up about hurting the president of the United States, if not actually killing him. The the former president is saying that stuff about law enforcement officials. I mean, I kind of wonder from an FBI perspective, given the role of the DOJ in prosecuting Donald Trump and now given the focus of Trump on all these prosecutors, how dangerous is it for field agents at this juncture? I mean, how does the FBI handle this sort of thing without sort of in turn, making these individuals martyrs for a cause.
3: Yeah, Alex, the threat environment is the highest right now than I can recall during my 25-year career at the FBI. Um, the personalization of going after specific agents by name. In fact, this individual um, specified that the agents, the two agents that were actually investigating him, launched threats about killing them, um, And, you, you know, it, it illustrates the challenge of trying to get out in front of this problem. It's, it's extremely dangerous right now for federal law enforcement. It's going to get worse. They've got to get it right every single time. The bad guy only has to get it right once, yet they're still doing their job. And the irony here is that while a, a June survey showed that 12 million Americans support the concept of acting out violently to restore Trump to office, you know, and and seemingly willing to die for Trump. The irony is that FBI agents come to work every day, putting their life on the line, not for Trump, but for the Constitution and their country.
0: Let me ask you, Frank, I mean, the FBI had been keeping an eye on this individual since March. And, you know, while he had a series of violent posts, in some ways they are something that is not unusual in this day and age. How does the FBI decide, Okay, you're someone we're going to actually visit physically? We're going to go in with an arrest warrant. Was it because he was in Utah and the president was going to Utah today?
3: I think that was certainly something that prompted the quick action. And, and I could re, read, in reading the complaint in support of the arrest warrant, it does seem like it was thrown together, uh, fairly quickly just in terms of, you know, some, some formatting. But rather, here's the, here's kind of where the line gets crossed. They did pay this guy a visit early on. And lo and behold, he actually pretty much threatened them. And he did say, yep, I did that. But, you know, I said some of that was just a dream. So he's trying to play with the line there legally. But then here comes even more threats against the FBI and Biden. And by the way, in there is not only Alvin Bragg, but in the affidavit, you'll see Kamala Harris uh, is threatened. Merrick Garland is threatened. Um, And by the way, Democrats generally, he specifies in one of his social media posts as targets of violence. So where's the line? Specificity, time, place, method, um, all plays into a prosecutor's decision to say, yes, I think we need to charge this guy. And then the lack of, of, of denial, you know, saying, yeah, no, no, I didn't mean it. He didn't do that. And Rightfully, correctly, thankfully, they sent a SWAT team in to execute this arrest warrant. My understanding, preliminary information is, it quickly turned into a barricade situation. They sent a drone in to try and scout things out and negotiate. Um, eventually, he grabbed a weapon, swung it toward an agent, and that was the end of his day.
0: Wow. What a what a time we live in. Um, Frank Fagluzzi, you're so wise and so knowledgeable with breaking news information here. Uh, thank you for your time this evening, Frank, really appreciate it. My pleasure. More ahead tonight, including Governor DeSantis and his continued purge of state officials he does not agree with. But first, what is Jack Smith looking for in Donald Trump's Twitter account? And why did he have to keep it all a secret? Stay with us. That's next. Alpha one niner commence
2: Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console console. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera.
3: They said, good news, Ms. President, we're going to give you a smartphone instead of a BlackBerry. I thought, all right, this is cool. I've been seeing Malia and Sasha doing all this. Michelle's got three of them. She's texting and all this. So I'm excited. I get the thing, and they're all like, well, Ms. President, for security reasons, uh, there's a great phone, state-of-the-art, but uh, it doesn't take pictures. Uh, you can't text. The phone doesn't work. Uh, you know, you can't play your music on it. So, so basically, it's, it's like, does your three-year-old have one of those play phones? Where that's like...
0: That was former President Obama in his last year as president talking about how, for security reasons, he was not allowed to have a normal smartphone. He had to basically have a toddler phone with no Spotify or anything cool. Now, when Donald Trump took office, one of the norms he smashed, one of them, was that he was not going to defer to the security protocols that were reserved for presidents. Trump would not give up his iPhone because he liked tweeting too much. And now it looks like Trump's refusal to give up Twitter for the sake of national security, well, it looks like that decision may be coming back to haunt him. Today, we learned that earlier this year, Special Counsel Jack Smith's office executed a search warrant that forced Twitter to turn over everything they had from Trump's account, at real Donald Trump. The question now is, what kind of evidence could Mr. Smith get from a search warrant like that, and how might he use it? Joining me now is Christy Greenberg, former deputy chief of the Southern District of New York's Criminal Division. Christy, thank you so much for being here with me. I know you have a theory about what the special counsel is looking for here. What is it?
5: Well, when I was a prosecutor, I did many Twitter search warrants, and among the things I would look for was to be able to show that the person who was using the account, who was sending the tweets from that account, was actually the person that I was looking to charge, right? So that it wasn't somebody who may have been authorized or unauthorized to use the account. It was the actual person I was looking for. So here... Donald Trump could potentially say, well, I didn't send that tweet. It was mm-hmm. some other aide, a social media manager, Dan someone else. Right. And so they want to be able to say and they have it throughout the indictment. The defendant tweeted the following. And the fact that they're so definitive about that in the indictment, they don't say this is a tweet from the account. They say the defendant tweeted it. It means they know. And so how do you know that this tweet came from Donald Trump beyond just the fact that it's his account? And part of the way you do that as a prosecutor is you look for location information. You look for device information. Twitter stores, collects, and uses your precise location information unless you disable that setting. And so they can say information like GPS, really precise location information of exactly where he was at the time and on the date that the tweets were sent. They can also use have information about the device that was being used mm. and the IP address, which is like a digital address. All of those things are be, are going to let the prosecutors be confident in saying this tweet was tweeted by Donald Trump.
0: Well, and I'm assuming that the tweets we're talking about include... You know, the tweets that he sent on January 6th as the insurrection is unfolding, most most famously at 2.24 p.m., Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done to protect our country and our Constitution. Of course, the December 19th tweet of 2020, big protest on January 6th, be there, will be wild. Those seem instrumental in trying to prove not the incitement to insurrection, which is not a charge that's listed in the indictment, but that there was a pressure campaign on Mike Pence, right, which was part of the larger fraud against the United States of America, and that the, the sort of foot soldiers of the insurrection gathered there by Trump's urging were used as effectively a battering ram against democracy, right? Um, would you—is that—it's is that, it, important, I guess you're saying, that prosecutors show that it was definitely, certainly Donald Trump who was behind that messaging. One hundred percent, and it's interesting that tweet that you mentioned about Mike
5: Pence not having the courage to reject or delay the count. That came after. Uh, that tweet came after his advisors tell him. There has been a riot at the Capitol. The Capitol has been breached. And he sends it anyway. So that goes towards intent. What is his intent? To delay that certification of the count. And so and that's the key to this objective of this conspiracy. So that
0: tweet is critical to proving his intent. You said that you've served lots of Twitter search warrants, something a newfangled uh, investigative device that I was not aware of. Um, There was a there was a back and forth between Twitter and the federal government in terms of executing the search warrant. And that was during the period that Elon Musk was in charge of the company. Elon Musk is sort of famously sympathetic to uh, Donald Trump and some of his allies. How unusual is it that there was that sort of resistance on the part of this private company to uh, an order from the court? Incredibly
5: unusual. I mean, criminal defendants, when you are investigating them, you don't want to have disclosure of the search warrant to a criminal defendant under investigation. They can destroy evidence. They could flee prosecution. They could let other potential co-conspirators know any number of reasons why you want to keep that search warrant quiet. And what was interesting about Twitter's response is they said okay, we actually agree that this is a valid search warrant and you're entitled to the information that is that is sought to be obtained in the search warrant. We just want to tell Donald Trump about it. And so we're not going to give you the information that we acknowledge you're entitled to under the warrant because we want to fight about whether or not we get to tell him, which is completely absurd. They're two very different things. They could have turned over the information and let the investigation continue and then litigated that non-disclosure issue, which was based on a First Amendment claim that was
0: completely bogus. I I mean, well, one would I mean, I think underneath that is probably a political concern, given the fact that Elon Musk has made a sort of name for himself in recent months in terms of protecting and defending the right wing and zealots like Donald Trump. The reason that this had to be kept secret is because prosecutors were worried that Donald Trump would
5: destroy evidence. That was the incredible part about this, that the government was concerned he would destroy evidence and let others know, uh, others connected to this know about it, and that the district court accepted yes. that. They were and like, then you're right. Ruled, yes, you cannot disclose this to the former president of the United States. It's it's quite an incredible opinion.
0: Baked in the cake is, is tampering with evidence. Unbelievable. Christy Greenberg, thank you so much for your time and brilliant theories <laughs> this evening. Still to come this evening, what do you do when you are trailing Donald Trump by double digits? You take a page from his playbook. Governor Ron DeSantis is trying his hand at you're fired, but it is not going exactly as planned.
3: I am today announcing the suspension of state attorney Monique Worrell from the Ninth Judicial Circuit effective immediately.
0: Florida Governor Ron DeSantis took some time off the campaign trail today, where he is polling at about 16 percent, to suspend another democratically elected state attorney, Monique Worrell. Now, last year, it was Tampa area state attorney Andrew Warren who was on the chopping block. Governor DeSantis suspended that Democratic prosecutor for refusing to enforce restrictions on abortion and gender therapy. Perhaps not understanding the irony, Governor DeSantis accused Warren of pushing a political agenda. Like Mr. Warren, Monique Worrell ran for state attorney on a progressive platform. In 2020, she won 67 percent of the vote in Orange and Osceola counties, becoming the only black woman to serve as a local prosecutor in the state of Florida. Also, like Mr. Warren, Ms. Worrell supports criminal justice reform, seeking to reduce incarceration rates and make the justice system more equitable, which was effectively the thing that got her fired. Governor DeSantis, flanked by the state attorney general and the law enforcement commissioner, today accused Ms. Worrell of neglecting her prosecutorial duty by failing to pursue mandatory minimum sentences for criminals. And boy, those optics were not an afterthought. The Orlando Police Union has repeatedly criticized Ms. Worrell for being allegedly soft on crime. The union recently blamed her for the shooting of two police officers by a man who was out on bond for sexual assault. In fact, Ms. Worrell says that much of the information that was used to build a case against her came from law enforcement officials who opposed her because she prosecuted officers, including one who shot an unarmed civilian. Ms. Worrell says she will fight her suspension in court... But given the limits of the court's authority over Governor DeSantis, she may have a better likelihood of being reelected than reinstated, a path she says she is also pursuing. Tonight, she spoke with my colleague Joy Reid.
2: All of the blue counties in the state of Florida are having their democratically elected officials removed. And that is because this is all about politics. He is weaponizing politics so that he can have gains in the polls for his failed presidential campaign.
0: Now, whether or not ousting duly elected prosecutors in Democratic counties is a winning strategy in a democracy. Well, our next guest has something to say about that. Former state prosecutor Andrew Warren, who was ousted by Governor DeSantis this time last year. He joins me next. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis suspended a top county prosecutor in his state today, and it was not the first time. The same thing happened almost exactly a year ago after the Supreme Court's decision striking down Roe v. Wade. When Andrew Warren, an elected state attorney in Hillsborough County, refused to press charges against abortion providers or patients seeking reproductive or gender affirming care, Governor DeSantis suspended Warren in August of 2022 and made an example of him. And now that the governor has basically done it again, this time to state attorney and Democrat Monique Worrell... We have just the person to talk to about what is happening here. Joining me now is Andrew Warren, the Florida prosecutor. DeSantis suspended last year. He was never reinstated. Andrew, thank you so much for being here. I'm sure you got a lot of thoughts about what is happening. But I'd ask first, do you think the governor was emboldened by what he was able to do to you and effectively turn that into a playbook for other Democrats working at the state level?
4: Yeah, absolutely, Alex. Uh, When I was suspended, I said that. This was going to uh, turn out bad for democracy in the state of Florida if we couldn't win in court. And we still have a case pending, but certainly the governor has been emboldened by it. He thinks he can get away with it. He has broken the law so many times as a governor. He has violated his oath of office to protect the rights of Floridians, and he keeps getting away with it. So why would he stop now?
0: Um, I, what, what's also what's secondarily striking about this is how little recourse there is to fight the governor on this. Can you talk a little bit about the ways in which DeSantis has populated the institutions that might otherwise hold him accountable with his own allies?
4: Well, the governor has amassed power in a very, you know, Eastern European, Soviet autocratic type of way where the legislature has abdicated their responsibility to be an equal branch in government, uh, where the courts have been very deferential to the governor who appointed them. But at the bottom line, the bottom line is we have a governor who has shown that he's willing to abuse his power to violate the law, to break the rule of law, to further his own political ambitions. And what you have here is just the latest incident, another example of an unconstitutional, in a legal attack on democracy by a small and scared man who is desperate to rescue his flailing presidential campaign.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you think this is directly tied to his. I mean, he's polling at 16 percent. He has not been able to gain traction with voters. He's very much being eclipsed by Donald Trump. And this is the response is to sort of eviscerate uh, the will of the people at the state level. Why does Florida stand for this? I mean, after you were taken out of office, Governor DeSantis is reelected by a very healthy margin in Florida. I mean, I look at what happened in Ohio last night, which was a clear sort of referendum on what happens if you try and undermine the will of the voters or threaten their sort of um, democratic, the, the, the ability for them to have a representative democracy. And I wonder why the same sort of lesson doesn't appear to be the same in the state of Florida. What is it about his ability to hold on to power in that state?
4: Well, it's a really good question. I mean, the reality is that our politics nationally and in Florida have been so divisive that people fall into this party tribalism where they put partisanship over country. And the simple fact is, whether it's a republican governor suspending a democratic state attorney or a democratic governor suspending a republican state attorney when you have an elected official who is willing to abuse his or her power to promote their own political agenda that is something that should send chills down the spine of every single american who believes in the rule of law and our democracy
0: i'm i am I am, stu- I am stunned that he's so explicitly autocratic or dictatorial, not just in strategy, but in language. I mean, the way in which DeSantis kind of crowed about this after suspending you, he bragged that he was the only elected official in America to remove a progressive Soros-funded district attorney. I mean, these are autocratic tendencies that he's bragging about. And— um, I wonder what that does to other Democrats in the state. Do you have a sense of what the, the sort of environment is like right now for Democrats who are operating at the state level inside Florida?
4: Yeah, I mean, he's shown that he's willing to punish people who disagree with him, whether it's the elected state attorney, whether it's Disney, whether it's the Tampa Bay Rays, whether it's teachers, whether it's people who want to teach history accurately. This governor has shown that he has these authoritarian tendencies, just like you said. I mean, and and what's crazy about this is that you have people willing to support him who are okay with what he's doing because they're like, well, he's on my team and I agree with his policies. Look, this is not about left or right. This is not about, you know, good policy or bad policy. This is about what is illegal or legal, what's constitutional or unconstitutional. This is about what's American or, in this case, very un-American.
0: Yeah, I'm also struck by the um, the sort of inherently punitive nature of everything that DeSantis does, right? It's it's almost in line with the Trump threat, if you come after me, we're coming after you. And you see the sort of cruelty and the vindictiveness and the punitive nature in everything from, you know, arresting felons who are trying to vote to migrant flights out of the state, scrambling people to various points uh, across the United States where they have no resources, um, to this, punishing Democrats largely for the crime of being Democrats. And that seems to be actually quite central to the Republican brand right now. And that is very much what he appears to be running on in a national campaign. Do you have thoughts on that?
4: I mean, I do. I mean, you you hit the nail on its head, right? He has orchestrated these criminal stunts to deport migrants. He has championed laws that courts have thrown out as unconstitutional. He has flirted with, if not violated, campaign finance laws. And when he stands up and speaks, truth has just left the building. and you referenced him talking about my suspension, he goes out and brags about what he did, conveniently ignoring the fact that a court said that it was unconstitutional and that it violated state and federal law. But he continues to brag about it. He has shown that he's willing to say anything and do anything to get elected. And right now, when his campaign is floundering, he's doing, you know, he's being desperate. And his desperation, unfortunately, is jeopardizing our democracy.
0: Andrew Warren, thank you so much for your time and thoughts. Appreciate it. Thank you. That is our show for tonight.